0: I oh, knew this was going to happen. Here we go. All right. Good morning, Renewal Church. Good morning. Yes. Aaron took the hit so that I can get a few more <laughs> good mornings. Thank you, Aaron. All right. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Renewal. Um, every time I'm up here for a Sunday uh, service to, to preach on a Sunday, it's kind of weird because I've been here long enough that for some of you, I've, I've known you guys for over 10 years. Uh, I came to Renewal as a student uh, of RCF, our college ministry, and now am uh, overseeing RCF, our college ministry. And so, uh, but but again, the, the point is that I'm up here, few enough that um, there's always a need to kind of reintroduce myself. Uh, but for those of you who have known for over a decade, um, I don't, good to see you, I guess. Um, I'm Justin again, but uh, for those of you who I have not had the pleasure of getting to know uh, yet, uh, my name is Justin. Again, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, like I said, I primarily work with our college ministry. I'm very thankful um, just as we're nearing the end of another school year. Um, there are many, you know, just testimonies of God working in and through the students' lives in our ministry and um, just very thankful for these, for these things and just working, you know, in our students on, our, on their campuses as well, uh, just as, you know, a significant part of our city and the work that we're doing here at, at Renewal. Um, some big personal updates for me uh, and my family. My wife, Pearl, and I, we had our first child last month, uh, baby—oh, thank you, thank you. I forgot if we do that kind of thing, so I didn't really know what to expect, but uh, we had our first child last month, uh, Steven, baby Steven, um, who's six weeks old as of yesterday. Um, and I'm happy to say that he's healthy, doing well, um, and for Pearl as well, that her postpartum recovery is going well. Uh, parenthood is, uh, is a doozy, uh, to say the least. Uh, but it's been an immense, immense joy as well. Um, we are you know, obsessed with our son as he's starting to uh, gain more weight, get a little chubby uh, and be more alert, you know, smiling here and there. And it's just been, um, yeah, it's been great. Um, and we wanted to extend a thank you to you guys as well. So I definitely want to take the opportunity to do that as well. Um, just our church community uh, that we've again just been so blessed by for for a long time now uh, for uh, the prayers for the different you know congratulations and um, the support that we've received from all of you Uh, it means a lot from you know just from the top down from the leadership uh, to even some of you guys who have been Uh, bringing us meals, delicious meals, in fact, um, to support us in that kind of way as well. Um, And even just the parents who, even if you don't know that you're doing this just for kind of setting a great example for parenthood, uh, Pearl and I have uh, been part of this church for, you know, a long time collectively. And, you know, we've seen many, many great examples of just parenting well and Um, in a god-honoring way and so you know even in that sense just kind of paving the way for you know young parents like us to to, as we kind of figure things out and so thank you thank you for you know for all these things and so again we've just been so blessed uh, by this community and 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 definitely wanted to say thank you for all these things and so thank you renewal well, it is my joy um, that, you know, after some time off with the baby, which was very much appreciated, uh, to be able to, you know, preach the word for us this morning to kind of get back into the swing of things. Uh, we've been covering First and Second Kings uh, for quite a while now, looking at uh, the lives of Elijah and Elisha in a series called Belief in a Time of Unbelief, Belief in a Time and one way that you know I personally like to understand First and Second Kings is that unlike the way that these books of the Bible are titled, First and Second Kings, in a lot of ways it's it's not the age of kings, um, at least not in the sense that they're the ones faithfully serving God. Uh, ironically, um, and especially for the Northern Kingdom Israel, which we've been looking at after the Israel split, after Israel split into uh, the Northern Kingdom, you know, took the name Israel, kept the name Israel, uh, we see king after king there fail to actually live the way that God called them to live. Uh, Instead, we see rampant um, idol worship, uh, the reception of foreign gods, and especially in the northern kingdom, just them losing their way uh, before the Lord. And it's in light of this that there begins what what I kind of see is this age of the prophets, right? Not that the prophets are new in this time, but um, namely Elijah and elisha, you know through the lens of looking at the lives of these two prophets and their ministry in Israel, despite uh, you know many many kings' failures uh, they they are the ones that call people back to God they're the ones that challenge people to um, repent and return to the Lord and so that's kind of the series that we've been going through and believe it or not, we are here this week and this is actually the last week of that series and so they brought me in to, to pinch it, or not pinch it, uh, to close um, on our series here on our first and second Kings series. And um, we're closing this by looking at this story of this woman who has come to reclaim her property. It's kind of the heart of what's going on in this story, this woman and the reclaiming of her property. And while many signs point to this story being perhaps slightly less eventful, or at least less kind of action-packed as we, you know than the stories that we've seen, Um, Elijah and Elisha involved with, we'll see that it's actually a very fitting way to close our series, uh, to close our uh, series, you know, through the lives of Elijah and Elisha, because, you know, we'll look at what's going on in such a way that it kind of naturally poses the question for each of us as, you know, as we've gone through this series, um, you know, how do we respond to what God has done through these two prophets? Um, How do we respond uh, to what God is doing, has done through the ministry of these two prophets and what these things point to, ultimately. And do we believe in a time of unbelief? And I'll present those questions again uh, towards the end of our message. But before we take a look kind of at what's going on here a little bit more in depth, let's um, actually bow our heads in prayer one more time if you'll pray with me. Right. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds this morning, help us to bring to remembrance just the things that you have shown to us through the lives and ministry of Elijah and Elisha, that as we've gone through um, this series, that God, that we would see the kind of God that you are through the miracles and events um, and ministry that you've uh, done through these two prophets, That these things would point to the kind of God that you are, that you're a God who is powerful, that you're a God who sees his plans to the end, that you're a God who is for us and who seeks us out even when we are not believing. And so God, would we not only come to see that that's the kind of God that you are, but that our response would be to worship you, to be humbled, and to want to return to you um, time and time again. And so, God, do that work, especially as we look at this last uh, story uh, in this book uh, and in this series. Um, Again, help us to see you through uh, just even the mundane things that happen. Uh, But as we look at this story, Lord, help us to see the kind of God that you are. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, our passage starts out by mentioning that Elisha had kind of tipped off a woman about an oncoming famine. He tells her, arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. And so she does what Elisha suggests. She uh, sojourns in the land of the Philistines for seven years and then upon returning after you know, being away, she finds that she needs to now appeal to the king of Israel to reclaim her house and her land. Uh, and then you know, before we go even any further there, to understand the context of what's going on here we've got to look at who exactly this woman is uh, verse 1 tells us that she was the woman whose son elisha had restored to life she was the woman whose son elisha had restored to life you see we didn't get the chance to look at this story uh, more in depth but we see in you know a few chapters ago in second in kings chapter 4 uh, verses 8 to 37 the story of the shunammite woman who was blessed with a son a son who had died after he had grown, and how Elisha raises the son from the dead back to life. In the beginning of that story, this Shunammite woman is described to have been wealthy. Uh, she would offer food to Elisha whenever he you know, kind of passed by her property. And after realizing that he was a holy man of God and seeing that he passed by pretty regularly, uh, she had a room built for him so that he could you know, lodge there whenever he needed And it's because Elisha was blessed by this woman's generosity that he prophesies over her that she would bear a son, even in her husband's old age, as the story kind of adds that detail. And then after that child had grown, he died sometime later while working in a field. And then acting in faith, the woman rushes to find Elisha immediately and plead with him to do something about her now dead son. And Elisha goes to the boy, he prays to the Lord, and he stretches himself out over the boy's lifeless body. And once again, we see God work a miracle through the ministry of one of his prophets, Elisha. And the boy is raised to life and then sent away with his mother. And then, now back to our passage today that we read today this same woman with her son returns again, from being away for seven years during a famine, and is pleading for her house and her land back before the king. And we see that just at the same time that she had come to appeal before the king, the king was talking with Gehazi, another familiar character for those of us who have been uh, following along in this series. Uh, Gehazi uh, was Elisha's assistant. Uh, not an assistant prophet, per se, but an assistant to the prophet, Elisha. All right? Uh, but Gehazi, who has seen all that Elisha has done throughout his ministry, he's seen the miracles that God brought about through Elisha. Um, and it's at this very moment that Gehazi is telling the king about these wonderful, amazing things that he's done. And at that particular moment, he was telling the king about the time that Elisha had raised a Shunammite woman's son, the story that is being referenced here. And... and um, at that very moment, that woman comes walking in with her son. And you can imagine Ghazi. oh, this is, this is literally who I'm talking about right now. This is literally the story that I'm telling you. And so the king, so impressed by the story and kind of caught up in the marvel of it, appoints an official for her to restore all the things that, uh, that was hers. And on top of that, restore the income that she would have received uh, if she had stayed in the land. And so just very broadly, When we look at that story, when we read that story at face value, we see a story of God's perfect timing, of God's providence and sovereignty as we sang plenty about, you know, working out the restoration of this woman and her house, her land, and ultimately her life. And yet, when we slow down and take a look at this from a few different perspectives, we see actually a couple different stories being told here. And what I mean by that is that we see you know, resurrection and restoration played out in one way in the Shunammite woman's life, what, you know, what, what's apparent in this story. But we can also see how these things play out rather differently for a kind of side character of the story, the king, and how his perspective is different here. And so that's how the rest of our time is going to kind of be outlined this, uh, this morning. We'll look at. Resurrection and restoration uh, for the Shunammite woman, for the king, and then we'll conclude by looking at these very themes um, as they pertain to us today, especially you know in the season of Lent. Uh, And so that's resurrection and restoration for the Shunammite woman, for the king, and for us today. First, uh, resurrection and restoration for the Shunammite woman. Now, I was summarizing the story of the woman's son being raised to life in chapter four. And as I was summarizing that, we see that this woman's story spans, you know, way back before you know our passage in chapter eight today. Um, this woman was uh, fully content with her life, her place in life, before uh, she kind of started interacting with Elisha. Uh, we see that this woman, um, she was wealthy. She had enough that she could just kind of generously, comfortably give to Elisha, this man of God. She owned a house. She had land. She was married. She was so content, in fact, that in chapter 4, verse 13, Elisha asks, what can be done to repay this generosity that that she's shown to him? And she actually says at first, you know, I'm good, I'm good. But Elisha eventually promises her a son, to which she responds, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. She says, don't play with me here. My husband is old, I know that. I'm not asking for this. Don't get my hopes up for no reason. And as a first-time father of six, of a six-week-old, not of six. As a first-time father of a six-week-old, tired and exhausted as I regularly am, I'm thinking maybe she was onto something by not really asking for a son. But, just kidding, nonetheless, um, you know, God indeed gives her a son. Uh, Perhaps it's, you know, the one area of life where she was not fulfilled, not content. A son to carry on her family name and her legacy, You know, we know the importance of an offspring uh, in biblical times, especially if her husband was old and near the end of his life, as that story includes that detail. You know, how hard it was for a widow in that society. And yet, ironically, almost as if God was playing games with her, the son dies after growing up. And it's when this woman, who was seemingly not lacking anything, loses what is perhaps at that point now most precious to her, that she understands what it means to truly be in need, to turn to God in her moment of greatest, desperate need. And we could assume that this mighty work uh, of her son being raised to life is why she had the genuine strong faith to take heed of Elisha's warning of the famine sometime later on, right? It's easy to read those, you know, to see those two stories in conjunction with one another Um, And just assume, oh yeah, of course she listened to Elijah, you know, the, the guy raised her son from the dead. But to be told to uproot your whole life, to leave your land, your property, your security, your future, and go to an unfamiliar land for seven years, you know, we could guess that it's only because of the faith that this woman had, because this woman has seen God's faithfulness toward her, that she herself had the kind of faith to be able to to do this. Um, Like I said, first time parent, but also my wife and I recently are new homeowners as well, which is also a whole nother level of doozy. Um, And as much as I believe firmly that it's by the grace of God that we're able to buy a home in West Philly, um, to be told to walk away from that for seven years would be kind of challenging to say the least. And yet, without much detail about what's actually going on through the Shunammite woman's mind, or in the Shunammite woman's mind, we see a faithfulness and obedience time and time again. We see a faithfulness and obedience toward God, really at every step. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is that even after obeying God at every step, doing what Elisha advised her to do to make these big decisions in faith, it seems as if, if the timing wasn't exactly right, right? If, the, if she hadn't come back to appeal for her property at just the right moment, if it was even an hour earlier or an hour later, she could have potentially lost everything yet again. And he easily could have blamed Elisha for that, to boot, again. Right? We don't read about her husband being around anymore. Who knows if he's still alive? And if this king is who we think he is, which I'll get to in a bit, then all signs point to this being an even more providential, miraculous uh, event than we might initially realize. And yet, the faith of this Shunammite woman was unwavering, fully confident in God that he would work things out. This story of faith of the Shunammite woman kind of reminds me, uh, as I was preparing this message, reminds me of Abraham. When God called him to do something unbelievable—to sacrifice, to offer up his own son uh, in sacrifice, Isaac—you know, again, something as a new parent, I can't fathom what it would be like to be told to do something like that. But it says in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 19, of you know, Abraham and his offering up Isaac, that he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Right, Abraham's faith. Similar to the Shunammite woman was that of unwavering confidence, full confidence in God, even in an unimaginably difficult, challenging situation. He just figured that if he did this, God would raise him from the dead because that's the kind of God that Abraham knew him to be. Perhaps the Shunammite woman knew very well that her chances of having her property, you know, returned to her were slim, but in faith, she still went forth with her son by her side, a living testimony of God's faithfulness, of his power, of his trustworthiness. Maybe she figured that even if this didn't work out, then God would have something else in store, something better. Well, she not only receives her house and her land back, but we read, That even the income that she would have gained during the last seven years had she stayed at her property she gets that as well and all this not a result of mere coincidence or things just kind of happening to fall into place or timing but all this as a result of her faith in a god who works every detail for his glory and for our good far exceeding our expectations when we wholeheartedly trust him. In the story of the Srinamite woman and her experience of resurrection and restoration in her life, we see a God who both gives and takes away, but who always sees his good and loving purposes through fully to the end, who always does that. Second, we'll look at in Probably easy to miss aspect of this story. And that's the story of resurrection and restoration as it pertains to this king. Now, we can kind of deduce that this king is none other than King Jehoram. Um, and speaking of, you know, confusion in First and Second Kings, Elijah, Elisha, slip of the tongue. I mean, who are we even talking about? Uh, Israel splitting to two kingdoms and the northern kingdom's name is none other than Israel. Um, Jehoram is actually the name of the uh, northern king uh, that we're looking at here and guess what the name of the southern king's name is shortly after Jehoram right just to add further confusion but we are talking about uh, Jehoram the king of the northern kingdom Uh, and while our story seems to only tell us you know very basic kind of neutral even slightly positive information about this king uh, we see elsewhere that that's actually not really the case and that's not the full story of what might be going on here Uh, 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, uh, gives an overview of Jehoram's reign as king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And this is what it says about Jehoram and his kingship. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made, nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. And so to be, so to be clear, right? Jehoram, like all of Israel's kings, was not faithful to Yahweh. Although he took down the pillar of Baal, he still led Israel in idolatry. And so when we compare his legacy that's written in chapter 3 as a whole uh, to the instances of this story where we see some seemingly good things that he does for this Shunammite woman uh, in response to Elisha's prophetic ministry, we can understand that it may not be all that it seems, right? See, there's a couple, you know, background things going on here, a couple details that we may have missed, right? Jehoram, as it mentioned in chapter 3, was the son of Ahab, who we saw earlier in our series— in the story of Ahab killing a man named Naboth for his vineyard. Simply because he liked Naboth's vineyard, he had an interest in it, he liked it, he wanted it for himself, but was ultimately denied possession of it. What did he go and do? He, he, Ahab killed Naboth for that land. And it's not too much of a stretch to consider that Jehoram, son of this king, son of Ahab, in our story, was in possession of the Shunammite woman's land, because he had learned his property-stealing ways from his own father, perhaps. Who knows how that appeal would have gone down had Gehazi not been telling uh, the king about the things that Elisha had done in that very moment. And then secondly, we understand that Jehoram was not a king who worshipped the Lord. Uh, We can begin to read in between the lines of what's happening here, right? Nowhere does it mention that King Uh, that the king was amazed at God when he heard the testimony of Elisha's ministry. Never does he worship God in light of all that he's hearing from Gehazi, including stories that reveal that he, the king, was a direct benefactor of a lot of the things that Elisha had done throughout his ministry. There's no worship. There's no amazement in God. There's no turning to God. You could argue that this was an opportunity for Jehoram to hear the testimony of God's power and work through Elisha, and it was an opportunity for him to turn in faith and repent from his idolatrous ways and turn to the lord but we don't see any such thing in this story what we do see are actions that align more with a mere intrigue in the testimony of grace whereas one commentator puts it and i love this he says clearly he's interested in the stories the king Clearly he's interested in the stories, is apparently fascinated with the testimony, but remains unchanged. So we have a king who was curious, but not committed, attracted to Elisha's works, but not submissive to Elisha's Lord. It was fascination and not faith. This king had a curiosity, but not a commitment, a fascination, but not faith. It's like when we watch a documentary, and there's millions of them it seems like nowadays, of any different you know, kind of environmental problem that persists throughout the world. You know, whether it's over farming, deforestation, overfishing, global warming, you know, you name it. You spend hours watching the horrors of what's going on in the world around you, and then when the credits roll, how often is our reaction just, oh wow, interesting. And that's it, just carry on. Gehazi is giving Jehoram a one-on-one private session of testifying about who God is, the wondrous works that he's done through Elisha, his prophet. And just as he's telling him about perhaps one of the most miraculous things that have happened, the resurrection of a woman's dead son, not something you hear about every day, she and the son come walking in as if to cause Jehoram to truly be able to behold the power of God to see and behold the son that was once dead and is now alive. And his, his response is then to confirm that it really happened with the woman. He asks her, did this really happen? She says, she says, yeah, she corroborates the story. And then he restores to her her property and money, you know, that let's not forget, very likely could have been acquired in the first place by shady, if not outright sinful and evil means to begin with. And so when we stop and think about the king in this story, this is not a response of someone who is getting it. While somewhat positive, this was probably in the grand scheme of things, this gesture of returning you know, these things to her. Um, not a big loss to Jehoram, right? chump change to the king of Israel. You know, who knows how many other properties he took advantage of during this famine. King Jehoram, by all accounts, has sorely missed an opportunity to wholesale turn from his ways after hearing of the Lord, to repent and worship the Lord. He missed that opportunity here. And so third and last, resurrection and restoration for us, or in other words, how we will respond, how will we respond to these two very different you know, kind of reactions to God's work through Elisha? As we consider these things, I'll simply just raise some questions that I think naturally come out, you know, out of reading this account of the Shunammite woman. You know, do we have faith to trust God both when he gives and when he takes away? Do we have faith in God to trust him when he gives and when he takes away? Or are we perhaps more lacking in faith than we might realize? It's easy to feel like we're on the mountaintops when things are going our way. It's easy to praise God when things are going our way, to assume God's blessing must be on you when things at work are going well, your relationships are vibrant and healthy, you know, prayers are being answered left and right. We praise God then. But what about the seasons where God feels distant? Where the things that happen in your life make you feel cursed rather than blessed? laid off from work, failed relationships, financial struggles, sin struggles that feel like losing battles for years. You know, I'm not suggesting to you that being faithful when he gives or when he takes away means that just because we you know, chant things like, you know, God is good all the time, which is true, which is absolutely true. But I'm not suggesting that that means that we as Christians need to put on a smile during the good times and then put on a fake smile during the bad times. That's not what I'm suggesting here. In fact, the Shunammite woman, when she lost her son in chapter four, she acted both in an act of faith and at the same time, very just brutally honest with her emotions as well, both in one you know, kind of instance, right? She placed the boy on Elisha's bed. This is when she finds out that the boy is dead. She placed the boy on Elisha's bed She tells her husband that she's gonna take a donkey and ride off to go find Elisha, but she tells her husband, all is well. And yet, when she finally reaches Elisha, she breaks down. She clings to his feet and says, did I ask for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? We see this woman acting in faith, but also in honest, very brutally honest despair before God brothers and sisters god invites us to come to him in the same way to come to him honestly you know when he takes things away or puts us through difficult seasons we can still turn to him in faith while being real about how we feel in that moment in that season being a christian is not about never experiencing feelings of anxiety loneliness depression despair or hurt but being a Christian is about having a savior and a God who understands these things better than anyone including even ourselves who knows our pain fully and he invites us to bring all of that to him and it's in light of being able to go to God amidst even these types of feelings that our faith grows like it did in the my woman's life How could she have had the faith to leave her land for seven years if she had not learned to trust God and his power and his ways and his timing first in the death and resurrection of her own son? How could Abraham have had the faith to be willing to offer up his own son as a sacrifice if he had not understood deeply that God was a trustworthy God, miraculously blessing him with a son to begin with, giving him eternal hope when he was utterly hopeless praying for this right praying and asking god for greater faith which perhaps we often do i know i do praying and asking god for greater faith entails that we will experience challenges we'll face difficult painful situations And God doesn't do this because he's, you know, playing games with us. Learning to trust God when he gives or takes away is a painful lesson, but a necessary one to truly learn what it means to need him. Because God is not showing us what it means to trust in his blessings, trust in the things that he gives us, but what it means to trust him alone. And so maybe today we need to think very carefully about where we're at in our faith, especially in this Lent season. Do we have a faith that trusts God both if he were to give or if he were to take things away? Have you prayed asking God to increase your faith, to strengthen your faith? Are you aware of what that kind of prayer entails? And do you see from a story like this that God is absolutely worth all that that entails god is absolutely worth praying that kind of prayer king jehoram on the other hand was interested in the works of god through elisha but not committed to god he had a fascination but he didn't have faith when we lose sight like this and i believe we do from time to time when we start making christianity about the gifts and not the giver the blessings and not the blesser when we make Christianity about the experiences of life while forgetting the true life giver or when we feel like we have faith only when things go our way but we completely lose faith the second things get uncomfortable we are actually more like King Jehoram in this story in those instances and it's only about what God has done for you lately, while having very little to no interest in the God himself. You know, for Jehoram, one could imagine that the second things become uninteresting, unintriguing, boring for King Jehoram, it's right back to his idolatrous ways. How many of us functionally experience similar ups and downs on really any given week? Right? We get bored with God. Back to the things that don't bore us. I know I do. Resurrection and restoration for the Shunammite woman represents learning to have unwavering faith in a God who always, always pulls through in the end. Yet the same themes of resurrection and restoration for the king in this story represent merely a momentary interest a convenient gesture in response. There's no repentance, there's no worship, there's no humility or sacrifice in what the king does in response to these things. If that's what we identify with, you know, more than the faith of the Shunammite woman, and let's be honest with ourselves, then the call this morning is to repent and behold God. Don't miss the opportunity to hear and see about who God is and just say, wow interesting or nice you know i've got my weekly fill of virtue i've checked off my little christianity box for the week for the day if we've grown bored of god more interested in the things of this world than the creator of the world himself then the call this morning is to repent and behold him While the woman had strong faith to obey God and live wholeheartedly trusting him because of the resurrection of her son, we today live by faith, wholeheartedly trusting the Lord, living boldly and confidently for him because of the resurrection of his own son, Jesus Christ. And while we may be temporarily sojourning in a land that is not ultimately our home, We await the day that we do one day go home, where our appeal for our ultimate restoration doesn't lie in the good favors of some imperfect king and being on his good side, but that it lies in King Jesus declaring that those of us who are in him are fully welcomed, fully welcomed in, receiving the fullness of all that he has in store for us for those who love him. That's the gospel. And so the final thought is this. Do we, church, believe in a time of unbelief? Do we believe to the extent that whether God gives or takes away different blessings or circumstances in life, that we have a faith that he is indeed good, powerful, loving, trustworthy? Or when the voices of this world or even within ourselves, tells us that God is merely a matter of intrigue, something that may be fascinating, but not ultimately fulfilling. Do we believe then? Or do we see and believe in the God who's worked through the ages, who brought salvation to his people through his son, Jesus Christ, to whom we wholeheartedly say, I hope, I believe. My hope and prayer is that as we close this series on Elijah and Elisha we would see very clearly the power of God the trustworthiness of God and yet that we wouldn't miss that the greater Elijah one day as we'll look at very closely in a few weeks the ultimate prophet, priest and king all in one what all of this is meant to point to and what that is is Jesus Christ, son of God that you wouldn't miss that that we would believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. As we do here at Renewal, um, I'll give you guys uh, some time to just, just reflect and pray. Um, you know, Perhaps some of these questions that kind of arose from this passage resonate with where you're at. Do you believe in a God who can give or take away that you would still have the faith to trust him even in the hard situations? Or have our hearts grown cold and bored with God, if we're honest, that we relate more to the king in this story who has a fascination for God, who sure, shows up to Sundays, will listen to the sermon, But we don't place our faith in him in in the way that we live out our actions, in the way that we make decisions throughout the week. And if that's you, perhaps think about where you're at and take some time to repent and behold who God is. Or maybe it's just the very basic question that this series is titled after, Belief in a Time of Unbelief. Do we believe amidst all the circumstances of our lives? Amidst the world around us today, the different voices that are competing for our attention, do we believe in a God who is good, who is real, who is powerful, who is trustworthy? And so think about these things for a moment and spend some time in personal prayer. And as you go ahead and do that, um, if there's any of you here that have not placed your trust in Christ, you don't consider yourself a believer. We're glad that you're here. Uh, and in fact, we believe that you know, God's perfect timing, working every detail, as we've seen in this story and as we've seen in many of the stories through this series, that that is just as you know, prevalent today, that perhaps He's doing that in your life, drawing you to Himself, causing you to be here for whatever circumstances. Would you also consider what it means to believe in God, in Christ. And if, you, if you're not there yet, that's fine. We're, again, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're hearing this. But would you consider what it means to believe in him this morning? Father, would you give us faith that doesn't depend on things going our way to trust you, to love you, and live for you? And if that's where we are, God, would you work in our lives so that our faith would be strengthened, so that our faith would increase, so that our faith would look like this Shunammite who through the different experiences of her life that you've brought her to, that you would teach us to trust you even when the situation seems impossible, that you would teach us to cling to you even when we're in our most desperate moments. Lord, that that would be our first instinct to run to you when we face trials of many different kinds. Lord, and for some of us at the same time, we are jaded, our hearts have grown hard, and if we're honest, you are a mere topic of interest in our lives amidst many different topics of interest. And if that's the kind of relationship that we have with you, God, would you beckon us? Would you call us to repent from our ways and help us to behold you in our lives? That as we encounter the living God in your power, in your majesty, in your trustworthiness, that we would once again come and believe in you. And that especially as we're in a season where we Are focusing our hearts and our minds on Christ. Lord, would we have a faith that is grounded on what your son did, the resurrection that he accomplished for us, the death and resurrection that says that we are free, that we are yours, that we are loved and that we have every reason to believe in you, would that become more and more evident in this season? And would you stir up our hearts to truly cherish Christ this season for each of us? Lord, that as we see the gospel clearly, as we see your character, your love, who you are clearly, that our response would be, I believe. Lord, so give us that kind of faith. Work that in us. We know that you are We love you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand.